From the Missouri School of Journalism, welcome to Global Journalist. I'm Kathy Kiley, in this week for Jason McClure. Today, we bring you a special edition of the program featuring one of the distinguished journalists whom we are lucky enough to host from time to time at the Mizzou campus. With me in studio at KBIA, Mid-Missouri Public Radio, is Marina Walker-Guevara. She's the winner of a 2019 Missouri School of Journalism Honor Medal. It's one of more than 50 awards, including a Pulitzer Prize, that Marina has collected in the course of her career, a career in which this campus has played something of a pivotal role. We'll talk more about that a bit later. But first, Marina, I want you to talk about the work that's won you all these accolades. As Deputy Director of the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, ICIJ, you manage multinational, multilingual investigations that expose international corruption. And you do it using a combination of sophisticated technology and old-fashioned shoe leather reporting. Tell our listeners a little bit about the Panama Papers, which won you and your team the 2017 Pulitzer, and the Paradise Papers. How do you feel these affected the state of our profession and the state of the world? Thank you so much for having me. First of all, I am thrilled to be back at Mizzou. Um, ICIJ is the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, and it's the organization that is behind the Panama Papers and the Paradise Papers. And what it is, it's a network of reporters in more than 90 countries around the world. And ICIJ was created because all of these investigative reporters were behaving way too much as lone wolves. They were all working in isolation and scooping one another, and as a result, we were missing big stories, and we were missing the big picture. So Chuck Lewis, our founder, decided to bring all the lone wolves together and teach them to work as a pack. It was a, a model and a system that made a lot more sense in a world that is interconnected, in a world where governments and law enforcement and even criminals collaborate and work in networks. So we investigative reporters needed to match that. And tell uh, our audience a little bit about how you do match that, because um, you talked about the lone wolves, and uh, reporters are notoriously competitive creatures, um, and investigative reporters, for those of us who have worked in newsrooms, uh, know they're particularly uh, competitive and uh, lonerish, uh, don't like to work uh, in teams. How do you manage that? Because that's one of your jobs, managing all of, uh, all of these lone wolves and getting them to work together. It's been a long process, but I, th I always call it the 3T approach, and it's trust, technology, and teamwork. The trust is the foundation of everything. We have to convince these journalists that they are going to be better off, that their stories are going to be more impactful if they share rather than scoop. And so we started like, you know, uh, with the smaller stories and they grew over time. And suddenly these reporters were like, oh, wait a minute. So I can get these documents from Chile and I can, and you can help me find that corporate registry that I've been wanting to get, you know, those documents in Mongolia. It, 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 they start to realize that things that seem impossible before 
now were possible because they were collaborating and they were sharing radically with colleagues around the world. That takes a lot of management and it takes, you know, on our part to create that kind of uh, atmosphere, to create that kind of environment where uh, the lone wolves can relax and can start to understand the benefits. And the most important thing, it takes good stories. At the end of the day, what all of these reporters want are great stories. And so we made it our mission to really identify with their help the best, the most urgent stories that there were, and then invite them to work on them in a completely different way that they had done before. Let's talk specifically about how that works. Um, I think, it, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the Panama Papers is still the largest investigation ever in, in the history of the world in terms of the number of organizations and reporters involved in it. And I think it was, what, 370 reporters? In 76 countries, yes. So talk about, uh, for people who aren't familiar, yeah. how did that start? And where did that investigation come out? And, and talk maybe, give us some details about specific cases. What was one of the hardest things you had to do? What was one of the most satisfying? Uh, the Panama Papers is a, is a really great example to explain how collaboration works. Uh, what happened is that these two German reporters, uh, Bastian Overmeyer and Frederick Overmeyer, and we call them the Overmeyer brothers, even though they are not brothers, they uh, received uh, because of their good work and things that they had been publishing, they received a large disclosure of information, of confidential information from the offshore world. And just for people to understand what is the offshore world, you know, you, you may have heard of tax havens. These are jurisdictions around the world, but there are also tax havens within the United States, for example, Delaware. Uh, and these are jurisdictions that have like really strict secrecy laws and where you can incorporate a company and attach a bank account to that company, and virtually nobody, not even the best prosecutor in the world, in virtu by virtue of those secrecy laws, will be able to crack open that company. So those, these jurisdictions naturally attract a lot of criminals. Uh, and there's large tax evasion and tax avoidance that goes through uh, these tax havens. This leak of 11 and a half million records was the largest open, the largest window ever in history into this secret world. It allowed us for the first time to see how the secret world works, who, was, who the main players were, who were the facilitators, and what kind of crimes were being committed. So as soon as Bastian and Frederick received this leak, they turned to the ICIJ, the consortium, because we had been working with them before. And they said, this story is just so big and so massive and it connects to 200 countries. We can't do it our, on our own, you know, from, from our newspaper in Germany. Let's do it together. So we call on the other reporters that we'd been working with before, and we created this team uh, trying to um, recruit as many rep reporters as possible to do justice to the data. Because what can a reporter in Washington know about the relevant searches and, and findings from this data in Greece or in Pakistan or in Iceland? We needed that local expertise because corruption is always first local. So what we do is we uh, work with the best possible, the best um, local reporters around the world, and then together 
we build the global story. How do you manage doing that? You're working with data across probably various kinds of computer software platforms, and you're working across languages. How do you manage to get people uh, working together and overcome some of those barriers? Technology has been crucial for the development of our network. Uh, 15 years ago or 10 years ago, we we're still working with mostly with email, and then we realized uh, we have to transform. We have to bring other disciplines to our team. We have to bring engineers and developers and coders to help us create an infrastructure that allows these journalists to collaborate safely and to take advantage of open source technology because we don't have money to create our own systems. So it was a combination of just, um, you know, uh, using technology in smart ways and also understanding what reporters really need around the world because we're working with reporters from Africa and we're working from, with reporters from the BBC and the New York Times. So it's not that this is a coalition of big media. This is a coalition of the best investigative reporters wherever they are and often they work in uh, difficult conditions and in difficult parts of the world. So give me so, an example. You said you, you so, uh, said BBC and New York Times, of course, those are major international, mm -hmm. internationally known publications. Uh, at the other end of the spectrum, give me an example of some of the smaller publications you work with. Some of the smaller publications, for example, we uh, in Tunisia, we work with Inkifada, which is the gutsy digital uh, outlet and that has been covering and holding the powerful accountable in that country through all kinds of uh, situations. They have been taken off the internet, uh, harassed, and they persist. And they do great work in an area of the world, in a country that, that we don't hear that much uh, and, and often enough. We do a really good work in West Africa, which is another uh, part of the world that because of the language barrier often gets ignored. So uh, I want to ask you more about two aspects of that, but first I want to remind listeners that uh, this is Global Journalist. I'm Kathy Kiley, and today we're talking about uh, international corruption and collaborative journalism uh, with Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Marina Walker-Guevara from the campus of the Missouri School of Journalism, where she obtained her master's degree in 2005. If you're interested in more Global Journalist, you can visit us online at globaljournalist.org. You can also follow us on Facebook or Twitter, subscribe to the video cast of this program on YouTube, or get our podcast from iTunes or Spotify. So Marina, you talked a little bit about some of these uh, organizations that you're working with in uh, countries that do not have as much protection for press freedom as uh, some of us have been lucky enough to be used to. How do you protect your journalists? Um, and is this a big problem for ICIJ? Uh, it is a problem, but on the other hand, collaboration is the best protection. That's what we've uh, realized. Uh, these are uh, reporters who, uh, in virtue or by virtue of the collaboration and the teamwork, can do stories uh, and can get away with them that they would not be able to do if they were just operating alone. So what they often tell us is that the, the coalition, the consortium, really gives them a shield uh, both to ask the tough questions and then on, on, on publication day to get the story out. A shield because they have allies in other parts of the world that will uh, 
make noise or protect them if they get in trouble? Is that what you're in talking about? In many ways, because they can access documents and data that they would to, to bulletproof their stories that they would not be able to access in their own countries, uh, because they can work with their colleagues from other parts of the world on certain aspects of the stories that might be difficult. For example, uh, in, the, in, in, in Western countries, we have a standard for going for comment, and we try to go for comment um, um, with many weeks uh, in advance in these global collaborations. That would be really dangerous for a reporter in Russia uh, to go for comment three or four weeks before publication because that's the window where anything can happen. So what they do is they uh, collaborate uh, with colleagues from other countries, and so the questions get asked three or four weeks before, but it's the reporters from the UK and the US and Canada, the ones that are asking the Kremlin the questions. And we don't mention the local partner, and the local partner then, a few days before publication, then ask uh, the questions that need to be asked. So that's a way in which we kind of like try to, uh, you know, legally we need to give time. These are complicated, issue, complicated issues. We've been investigating for a year. We feel we can't just go with, with a day notice. But we have to protect the local journalists. So these are some of the strategies that we are using. Have any of your local partners been arrested or retaliated against that you know of? Our local partners constantly face all kinds of threats. Uh, the most prevalent ones are the legal threats. Uh, they are harassed uh, with lawsuits by tycoons and government officials, uh, lawsuits, uh, frivolous lawsuits, uh, lawsuits um, for um, supposed factual errors that were no errors, or uh, lawsuits to try to obtain the documents. And these that, that were the basis of the investigation. And the interesting thing is that it not only happens in um, autocratic countries, uh, we had a situation in Finland where the Finnish government took a case all the way to the Supreme Court trying to compel our local partners at the public broadcasting system to disclose the Panama Papers to them. When the reporters told them, we don't have the Panama Papers, we have seen the Panama Papers, we have reported these stories, you need to get those documents in Washington if you want them. And of course, as we know, that even if a lawsuit is frivolous, it can be very damaging to a media organization, especially a small one that doesn't have a lot of money. It's distracting. Because the meter yeah. starts to run. Yeah. Yes, it's distracting and it's costly, and, and it also has like a, an emotional toll on the journalists that suddenly have to produce all these documents and have to, to fight these battles. So, we, so that's, that's one aspect of things. There's also a lot of online harassment after publication, and some cases, uh, like in Ecuador and, other, and, and in other countries, we've seen even you know, those campaigns um, led by the president of the country. That doesn't help. Uh, and in some of the worst cases, uh, um, our colleagues have been uh, hurt or, in one case, uh, murdered. Can you talk about that case? Yeah, uh, that was Daphne Caruana Galicia. And oh, she was she's, one of your reporters. Yes, she's yes. The, she um, um, was a, an investigative journalist in Malta. And uh, she didn't uh, join the first wave of Panama Papers stories. But as soon as we published, she joined the effort. And she built on our work. And she did amazing um, reporting. And a few months after that, uh, she was killed in her car when a, bo a bomb went off. Her daughter, her son, excuse me, Matthew Caruana Galicia, 
was an employee of ICIJ at the time. He was one of those developers that we had uh, recruited years before to help us create this architecture, uh, um, uh, this technical architecture for sharing. And I'll recommend to our listeners an earlier program that we did here on Global Journalist about the Daphne Project, a really great um, project that's being done out of Paris by a journalist who was really inspired by work done here at uh, the University of Missouri by the investigative reporters and editors who were founded when a journalist here who was doing investigation of corruption in the United States was killed, Don Bowles, and his colleagues came together to finish the work. So the message we're trying to give, right, is you can try to kill the story, but uh, you can kill the reporter, but you can't kill the story. We, we're going to keep coming after you. Yes, and that's what collaboration has brought to journalism and to the world in terms of protection of journalists, that uh, these coalitions are really hard, or I would say impossible, to take down. And this is uh, making the bad guys uh, really confused uh, about uh, their power over these investigations. So uh, just a reminder to our listeners, you're listening to Global Journalist on today's program. We're talking about international corruption and the work journalists are doing to combat it with Marina Walker Guevara, Deputy Director of the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists and a graduate of the Missouri School of Journalism. Um, Marina, how do you fund all of this work? Uh, journalism is expensive, and uh, it's we don't have the same uh, sources of advertising revenue that we used to now that uh, ads have gone online. Uh, talk about the sources of your funding and how hard it is to, or maybe it's not hard. It to is very hard. ICIJ is a nonprofit organization incorporated in the, U the U.S., and we rely on donations from foundations and from the public. Uh, we are very excited about our, uh, it's called Insider Program, and it's a membership program uh, that anybody can um, uh, subscribe to. And basically people donate as little or as much as they can. Uh, some people donate, lots of people donate $5, $10. Uh, but last year we were able to, to raise a good amount of money uh, to pay uh, two or three salaries for our reporters based on those little donations from the public. So, wow. Crowdsourcing yeah. paid for the salaries okay. of a couple of reporters? That's yes, fantastic. That's fantastic. So our aspiration is that um, by 2025, we can have about 30% uh, of our uh, budget be covered by our, our uh, readers and uh, our supporters. And um, what is your, how do you go out and raise money? And uh, do you, if, if somebody listening to this program wants to donate, how do they do that? If somebody's listening and would like to donate, we would really appreciate it. And they can go to icij.org and go to donate. And then the insider um, uh, program would give them options for uh, levels of donation. And the donations that we appreciate the most are the ones that are um, recurrent, so that you every month you donate a little bit. And we try to be in contact with you. We try to give you ins a little bit of insight into our uh, reporting, our methodology, a little bit of behind the scenes. We want to really create a community of supporters and readers that can help us also be better, that can ask tough questions from the journalists, that can help us correct course if we are not um, writing our stories in a way that makes it easy for people to understand these complex issues. So what we are really trying to do is to be better 
um, at engaging with our communities around the world, both local and globally. Of course, in a time when we are competing with so much on the media and so much infotainment that's out there, how do you establish your credibility as a news source and um, how do you convince people that this is important? Why should people care about corruption in Malta or West Africa? Uh, that has been a big challenge for us and, and we are pretty proud of, especially after, uh, since the Panama Papers, of how we've been able to um, really tell the story in a way that people realize that we are all victims in the corruption story. Uh, when um, officials and, and, and businessmen and multinational corporations are evading and avoiding taxes where they, when they are like emptying the coffers, uh, we are all suffering. Our roads are worse. Our schools are worse. There's not enough money to pay uh, law enforcement, to pay teachers. So I think it was powerful when people started, and we saw it in Panama Papers, to realize that, to realize that they were part of that story, that this wasn't like a story about like corporate boards and, and something removed from their reality, but that if they didn't do something about it, um, they were going to be worse off. And that's what I call like the public square kind of moments of Panama Papers, when we saw people actually going in the streets and demanding that their leaders resign. And they succeeded in two countries, in Iceland, two days after the publication of Panama Papers, and in Pakistan, of all places, a year after we published, the prime minister had to resign. So you said uh, in an interview uh, two years ago that there are two worlds. There is a secret world for the rich and the powerful, and they get to play by their own rules. And then there is the regular world where we all live. Uh, when did you discover that, and uh, how do you think journalism can help alter that equation? This uh, story uh, and, or stories that we've been doing now for several years are not about taxes. These stories are about inequality and uh, the ever-growing uh, inequality in our society. And the fact that there's uh, these little islands, and sometimes they're not islands, where um, a few powerful people armed with lawyers and accountants uh, can decide their destinies and can decide how much taxes they're going to pay and how many secrets they, were they are going to have creates huge problems for the 99% uh, of the population who actually are trying to get by and are trying to follow the rules. And so um, for us exposing this and exposing how mainstream and how um, accepted this dual reality has become. Uh, the fact that these jurisdictions exist and that this privilege exists is something that our economic and political systems have sanctioned. We have accepted that it's okay for some people to have these privileges, even though we know that, that, that the secrecy attracts so much criminality. Now, you started working on stories like this quite early. Uh, your, talk to us a little bit about your master's uh, thesis here at, at the Missouri School of Journalism and how you got started on that. Uh, my experience here at Mizzou was really transformational and, and fundamental in the, uh, for the rest of my career path. Because when I came here, I had already done five years uh, um, of um, 
college in Argentina, and I had already done a, a thesis there. Yeah, so, so let's take your reader, let's uh, let the listeners know you are uh, originally from Argentina, correct? Exactly. T- tell us, up, what is the path that brought you to journalism and to the United States and then to Mizzou? Okay, so I was born in the wine country of Argentina. If anybody has ever drunk Malbec wine, they know where I come from, it's Mendoza. And um, I always, I, I, I knew I wanted to be a journalist. I was always outraged about the many injustices in my country. And I uh, decided to study the closest to journalism, which was social communication there, and then worked at a newspaper for several years where I did a lot of in-depth reporting. But I, uh, there wasn't a tradition of investigative reporting in Argentina, and there wasn't a freedom of information law. So that's uh, why I decided to come to the U.S. first as an Alfred Friendly Fellow, working for the Philadelphia Inquirer newspaper in Philadelphia. And And so the Friendly Fellows, we should say, uh, are a program here at the University of Missouri, and they bring professional journalists from all over the world uh, to the United States, first to Mizzou for training, and then you go out and work in newsrooms. And you went to Philadelphia where you not only learned journalism, but met someone very important in your life, correct? I did. I met uh, a journalist called Gail Sims, and Gail is an alum of Mizzou. Uh, she was working at the Philadelphia, Philadelphia Inquirer when I was there, and uh, she was a mentor to me, but uh, she also was uh, a matchmaker. She introduced me to uh, Adam, my husband, who's also a journalist. So uh, so you went from Philadelphia and then you went back to Argentina, correct? Yes. Yeah, so in, in Philadelphia, I kind of realized, so, so th- that, that was such an incredible experience. I wanted more of that. And I wanted um, to work in the U.S., but I needed more uh, practice. And I needed more, um, I wanted to learn better the investigative reporting methodology. And so Gail and others at the Inquirer convinced me to apply uh, for a master's degree here at Mizzou. And they always said it's the best journalism school in the world, not even the country, the world. And and they were right. So I applied and I came here as a Tina Hills fellow, the first uh, Tina Hills fellow, working for a bilingual newspaper the school had at the time. And I took all the investigative reporting classes I could take and did my master thesis. Uh, I proposed instead of a traditional thesis to do a a cross-border investigative story. And I was very surprised and excited when they said yes. And that story was Children of Lead. Yes, that was the story of um, a Missouri-based lead company that had transferred its dirty operations to a small uh, village in the Peruvian Andes, where 99% of children had deadly levels of lead poisoning. So that story hadn't been told, but the story of, of similar things the company had done in Missouri had been told. So there was a lot of information in this country, in public records, that I could, was able to obtain. And then I traveled to Peru and did that side of the story. But along the way, I also uh, collaborated with journalists, especially with American journalists, including um, Sarah shipley Hiles, who is a professor now here at Mizzou. Um, we worked together, and that was my first experience of collaborating across borders and across expertise and languages. Um, and that kind of like set the stage for what uh, would come next. For a career that has really taken you to the highest levels of journalism and really made you a standard bearer for uh, investigations and collaborations 
And so I really want to thank you, Marina Walker Guevara, for spending some time with us at Global Journalist. That is about all the time we have, unfortunately, for this edition of Global Journalist, a production of the Reynolds Journalism Institute at the Missouri School of Journalism and KBIA, Mid-Missouri Public Radio. Our thanks to our producers this week, Sam Wagan and Laura Mizere. Takia Thomas is our audio engineer. I'm Kathy Kiley, sitting in for Jason McClure. For all of us at Global Journalist, thanks for tuning in. Thank you.